In our gospel lesson today, there are a lot of pieces of this particular passage of scripture, a lot of individual verses that are very familiar, that are so familiar and popular, in fact, that they have a life and a meaning all on their own. Are you born again is a question that people will often ask as a shorthand for, are you a Christian? Or as a title that someone will claim and say, I am born again, or I am a born, of Christ, born again Christian. As though making a distinction from the rest of Christians, which is actually what they're doing. The, the phrase of referring to a Christian as someone who is born again became popular in the 1960s in America. We had an evangelical renewal movement that, that was going on. And before that, the majority of Americans went to church. It was the mark of being a good American. You went to church. It also kind of proved that you weren't a communist. And we were very, very concerned about that. Your boss would probably ask you on Monday morning if you had been to church the day before. Or if you went to the same church, might ask you why you hadn't been at church. And frankly, nothing was open and there wasn't anything to do on a Sunday morning anyway. So even though church attendance was at an all-time high in America, it led to a lot of people being Christian in name only. Not living, really living a life with a changed heart, but just going to church. Born again came to mean a real Christian, not just someone who attended church. But often... When someone speaks of being born again, it sounds more like it is the goal, the destination, the arrival, or the end point. I'm born again seems to imply, and, and I'm done here. I'm good. I'm covered. John Wesley and the Methodists thereafter referred to a new birth from the same language from the same passage. And Wesley called it the first work of grace. The first work. Not the end point, not the destination. Wesley, in fact, put it at the beginning of the faith journey. When he preached about this particular gospel lesson and the need for a new birth, he called it a move towards holiness. He said that a new birth is that great change which God works in the soul when he brings, brings it into life when he raises it from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. New birth, being born again, being born from above, as the NRSV translation has it. It's that move towards holiness and salvation. It's that great change that God works in each of us, the first step in living a life of faith and salvation. Wesley saw salvation also not as a moment or an end point or a single decision of repenting of sin and accepting Christ, but the ongoing work of us to live with Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. Instead of asking, are you born again or are you saved, it would be more like, are you continuing to be born again? Are you continuing to be saved? Are you moving on towards perfection in grace and love. And so with this idea of a lifelong process and journey, John Wesley had a process, an order of salvation, from turning from sin to then justification and sanctification and glorification, stages of grace and stages of salvation. 
And rather than breaking each of those terms down this morning, the simple way is to say that the work of God is ongoing, that our response to God is ongoing, that we are always working with God just as God is always working with us. New birth is something that John Wesley said, God does in us. God is the one who gives birth to us all over again, the one who gives us new life. Just as birth is the beginning of our lives, so too new birth is the beginning of our lives in faith. In the life of a Christian, the new birth is considered that first work of grace in our lives. And so while we today might ask or wonder, what does it mean to say one is born again? Nicodemus was the very first person to ask. He hadn't yet seen it on a billboard or a bumper sticker, and a stranger had not yet asked him on a street corner or in the the grocery store checkout line. Nicodemus had first come to Jesus to, to have a conversation with him, to ask him some questions. He had seen what Jesus had done, some of his miracles and signs, and heard his teaching, and he said anyone who can do those things must be from God. And so Jesus, as a way of affirming that, of a way of saying yes, said that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, which then prompted Nicodemus' question, well, how on earth does that happen? Now, teachers will tell you, and I know there are teachers in this room, that there are no dumb questions. That's right. There are no dumb questions. You should ask your questions, and you should ask your questions because maybe there's somebody else in the room that has that same question, but they don't feel comfortable asking. Nicodemus's question, however, throughout the centuries has been labeled as a dumb question. He's gotten the reputation for being a fool. I don't think he's so dumb. I also don't think he actually thought that that's what Jesus really meant in a literal kind of way, but he was confused And he wanted some clarification. How on earth could someone suggest that such a thing as entering this world physically all over again, as in birth? We would probably ask that too if we had never heard about this before. Jesus, who all of the time teaches using stories and metaphors, takes this opportunity to inform that he means to be born not of the flesh as we all were originally, but also to be born of water and the spirit. Grayson, could I have the next slide, please? As we get a little older, we often long for the days when we were younger. Right? You hear it all the time. When you were a little bit faster, when your joints didn't ache so much, when your mind was a little bit sharper, Maybe when there were mistakes that you hadn't made yet and you'd like a bit of a do-over. And yet I'm sure that most of us actually would not like to really start all over again as babies. It's hard work to be a baby. You have to learn everything. How to walk. How to eat. Do we, would we really want to go through childhood all over again? We might long for it sometimes, for the highlights of it, but do you really want to go back to elementary school and learn math all over again? We don't even need to think about high school, right? There are just things we don't necessarily want to go back and do. 
And so Jesus is not inviting us or Nicodemus to exactly imagine ourselves physically, literally, as infant human beings all over again, but to understand still that newness, that freshness, that new first start, and to honestly consider the struggle that will lie ahead, the journey of faith before us. Because to be born again, to experience new birth, or to be born from above does not mean that we are done now with this thing called salvation. Like the phrase and the use of it, the born again kind of tagline, the verse from John 3.16 has also become almost a shorthand for faith because it encapsulates so much of the Christian faith just in one sentence. But there's such a muddle of meaning that we often forget the full context of the passage. We often forget that this single verse happened in the middle of this conversation about who Jesus is and what God is doing. That Jesus is talking to a Pharisee who's had to approach him in the night, presumably so that no one would see that he was talking to Jesus in such an open manner, that he was asking questions, that he was genuinely curious. We see John 3.16, or just 3.16, on, on bumper stickers and t-shirts and everywhere where you might see printed words held up at signs or on that um, black paint that goes under the eyes of football players. As Mac mentioned, we, we see these signs because in many ways this phrase is important. And yet, when we neglect the entirety of the passage, we sometimes only focus on the eternal life part. We seem to be suggesting that those who believe in Jesus will have eternal life, and that is maybe the beginning of an invitation, but it often sounds like a warning as well. To take that verse out of context and then to lift it up all by itself focuses on Jesus' death on his being lifted up, but it ignores the rest of the message. Can you just flip to the next screen? Next slide, Jason, please. Thank you. So there you have it again. I'm sure you've all seen this, right? At sporting events, people holding up signs, other public events. I did a little bit of research because I was curious about when this had started, and it hasn't been going on for all that long, really since the 1980s. And there was a man, the first man to do this, his name was Rollin Stewart. And he went to an awful lot of games, mostly football and some golf at first. And at first it started with an obsession with being famous. He wanted attention and he wanted to figure out how to get on the camera. And so he would go to these events and he would dress in a way that would get attention. He would wear simply a loincloth and people would notice him. He later became a Christian, and he wanted to share his faith again in a way that would get attention and ask questions. So he started wearing a T-shirt that said, Jesus saves on the front. It said, repent on the back. And he held up the John 3.16 sign. He also had um, a large uh, rainbow-colored, like, clown wig that he would wear. His theory was that people would get curious and then turn to their Bibles to look up the passage and then stumble into a life of faith. 
It would be fortunate if his story ended there with the, the planting of these seeds for curiosity, for conversation, for repentance and transformation. But even though he went to about a thousand events, he went to football games and golf tournaments and World Series and the royal wedding and political national party conventions, he later on said that he actually despised sporting events. He also became very concerned with the end of the war, end of the, end of the world, and recognized in himself a problem with paranoia. But eventually the sign holding turned into um, stink bombs. And after a standoff with an L.A. SWAT team, he's now serving a prison sentence of three lifetime terms. We are all far from perfect. But this unfortunate story underscores the fact that simply claiming to be a Christian or even claiming to be born again or lifting up a John 3.16 sign are not enough to keep us from falling into really unhealthy behaviors. And remind us that faith is a lifelong process of growing and learning. We live in a time and a society when, when bumper stickers and slogans are often more judgmental and frankly aggressive sometimes than actually helpful and inspiring. They lead us to cheer from our individual corners about who's in and who's out and who gets it and who doesn't and who's woke and who's ignorant. Nicodemus and Jesus show us a model for conversation that goes beyond catchy phrases or Facebook memes. They show us a conversation full of, of listening and questioning and teaching, full of vulnerability. Nicodemus approaches Jesus brave enough to ask the questions. And Jesus responds with his own questions and lessons in return, and they talk, and they listen, and they share. A full conversation that can't fully be captured in one word and the verse numbers. Wesley's understanding of salvation also takes a lot of time and understanding of nuance. This isn't instant stuff. It's, it's the hard work of growth and rebirth and resurrection, like the bulbs that are blooming all around us, like seeds that have been planted. It takes time to grow. Jesus says that he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Not to judge disapprovingly, not to punish, not to declare us guilty, but to save us and to lead us into new life. And why? Because of love. A love for the world, a love for the whole world, so deep and universal that God was willing to sacrifice, to endure, and to suffer, so that we might find a way a way of salvation that includes a life full of growth and learning and relationship with God. Amen.